Death Holler is a horror cast created by two true horror fans to bring to the table your favorite horror films. Topics include, but are not limited to, historical horror, gore, the occult, and terror. Listener discretion is advised. If you go and I, I saw this on a, a blog that I, you know, was reading about the 25th anniversary of this movie. If you go from about the 29 minute mark to about an hour and nine minutes, Alan Pangborn is not in the movie at all, at all. Like it's all scenes of Buster, Nettie, Wilma Jerzyk, Leland Gaunt. That's all you get for like that amount of time, from like 29 minutes into an hour and nine minutes, and then Alan Pangborn comes back. It's hard to really take him as the as the true hero of the movie when he's not even in a good portion of it. And I think that's another failing of the movie. At, you know, they, they cut out their hero for most of it. Yeah, um, I want to agree with you. However, on my end, how I viewed it was that his scenes were powerful enough that I didn't even notice. That's the flip side. And I'm not saying that I disagree with you. You're absolutely right. He should have been in a lot more scenes, but... Man, for me to not even notice is pretty, well, that's not saying a lot because I often miss a lot of details in films. (laughs) That's just me, but it didn't feel like he was missing. There was a lot more in the book that they were, that's why I was going to go into that first is because Alan Pangborn had this whole history in the book that he had just lost his wife and his son. And there's a lot of the grief that he's dealing with with that, and it makes him a richer character because of it. And it also informs his relationship with Polly Chalmers. That's the reason they connected is because she was kind of his sounding board. She was kind of the person that was there for him to kind of walk him back from the ledge, uh, as it were, uh, whenever he was in his worst depression and grief over the loss of his family because he kept blaming himself. And she basically was the one person that's like, how are you to blame for this? Basically, what it amounted to was his wife had like a brain tumor or something like that, and it made her basically commit suicide and take her son in the process. And Alan couldn't believe that he didn't notice the signs, being the detective that he is, and he is good at what he does. And, you know, and, and basically, you know, Polly was the one that, you know, gave him like a, you know, a, I, don't, I don't know if it's a physical, but it was a, you know, at least a metaphorical slap in the face. It's like, there's no way you were too close to it, first of all. Secondly, you know, you everybody involved, the doctor included, didn't catch this. So how were you as a layperson ever going to notice she had this? And, you know, and it's like, you know, she's the one, and that's how, and, and that's what kind of, and so it gives a better history behind them and kind of informs them better. And the one thing that she's got to her detriment as a character is the fact that she's got this whole history of where she lost her own son you know, as a single mother out in California, because she moved out there from Maine for a while, and she will not, and she will not let Alan in on that. That is her secret. That's whenever in the movie Leland is talking about he loves a prideful woman. That's the same line he uses in the book because she holds that pride. She even Alan, who's her true love, she won't even let in on that secret. And that's the one, like he and she feels so guilty about it. He bared his soul to her, but she won't do the same for him. 
and Gaunt works that magic or works that problem against the two of them because to get Alan out of the... He does get Alan out of the picture for a while and sends him to a completely different direction, but that's by, uh, you know, having Polly break up with Alan or in a sense, but it's a lot more meaningful in the book because she thinks that he has somehow found out about her son in the book and has went behind her back and investigated it because she gets a letter dropped off by I think the the priest is the one that does it in the book in that one. Um, that's at her house and it's, you know, it's addressed to Alan. It's basically like, you know, it's the California board of whatever that's over, you know, like child welfare. And it's like, you know, we're sorry, Mr. Painborn, but we can't, you know, open that file up because it's not, uh, you know, uh, something you're entitled to under, you know, your privileges as a sheriff. And she's, and it's like a, to her that, I mean, and it's more powerful the fact that she would break up with him at that point, because it's like an invasion of the one thing that she holds dear where in the movie, it's just like she randomly finds some money on a ship and she automatically assumes that he's like in bed with Buster Keaton. I mean, well, she's supposed to be under his sexual seduction. So there's that again, also to be inferred. Yeah, it's inferred, and it, it, I don't know. It plays like a CW drama in the movie. It's just like one minute they're true loves, and she they propose or he proposes to her. Next minute, you know, she uh, sees the the money there because Leland Gaunt sends her to the boat, and she's like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're a horrible person. It's like, couldn't you have at least ask him about the money before you did that? I mean, in the in the book she doesn't really talk to him much either about it but that's because her pride won't let her talk to him. i mean like she, she when she gets so furious at the fact he goes behind her he he breaks that trust and trust being broken to me is more of a reason why she wouldn't talk to him than in the movie just randomly seeing money laying out there i don't i don't buy that you know as far as a you know a reason for her to blow up the way she did and and trivia a little bit of trivia on that her life in California and Pangborn's children or child and wife uh, being lost were actually in this movie originally in the very first draft of the movie whenever it was first written about two directors before this that was in there and it was one of the things they had to cut out so it's kind of it kind of sucks that you know they cut out uh, I mean the one thing and they they dropped Pangborn for so long and then they also cut out like the one thing that kind of makes him a, a stronger hero in my opinion the fact that he's kind of overcome that grief just a tiny bit and that you know that's kind of where he's you know operating from so apparently that was a detail that they didn't think would help this <laughs> film much I would like to derail slightly not entirely but did you get the sense that certain characters represented the seven deadly sins? Uh, I'm sure they were there. I didn't focus on it that much. I'm trying to think. I mean, Greed's in, uh, amongst all of them. I mean, Stephen King. Oh, big time. As a bit of trivia, Stephen King actually wrote this as like a critique of 80s, you know, era America, the Reaganomics type thing. So, I mean, that's, that's what it's critique of. But other than Greed, I don't really, I mean, I guess... Well, I mean, if you're going to go down that route, uh, Wilma Jerzyk's definitely Wrath. I mean, she's the epitome of Wrath. I don't know who Sloth would be necessarily. I was thinking it would be... Ugh, why can't I remember right now? The guy with the Letterman jacket. Oh, Hugh Pre... Well, yeah, he kind of would be because he's kind of just a... He was he's kind, kind of a bum. bum. He just he doesn't do anything, but it, he does his job during the day and he goes and he, you know, drinks it up at the bar at night. So, yeah, he could be Sloth. That would, that would be... And he was kind of described as a lazy worker that didn't amount to much. But then again, that was also by Buster, who obviously had ulterior motives. They describe him in the book that way, too. And that's another. And that he's if, if uh, Ace Merrill's one side of Stephen King's addiction, Hugh Priest is the other side because Hugh Priest represents his drunk side. 
and throughout the whole. And then that's one of the things that's kind of heartbreaking a little bit about Hugh Priest. He's mostly a piece of shit in the novel too, uh, less so than in the movie. The movie he has no redeeming factors, but in the book, whenever he sees his needful thing, which in the in the book is a is a fox tail, you know, one of those little things they used to do in the fifties. It was like a little tchotchke they attached to their antenna that like whipped behind while they were driving you can see it in the movie for a split second whenever he has his needful things seen and you know or his and he's in the car with his letterman jacket on you can see the foxtail but um when, whenever he first touches the foxtail it gives him hope that maybe the shit piece of person that he is now can can be fixed that maybe he can start going to aa maybe he can start getting his life together maybe he don't have to be the 50 year old drunk that's like living in a shack you know and and doing like you know menial work during the day and and you know but then uh, the the bad part about the needful things are you get obsessive about them to the point that you're you're afraid that somebody's going to steal them from you at all points in time and so he gets so obsessive oh absolutely about the foxtail that he can't leave his shack and so he never goes to the AA meeting, so he never gets better. And that's kind of the the bad part about his trajectory is that the needful thing offers him the hope, and then it pulls it back because he's so obsessed with it. He can't he can't be parted from it long enough to go do the things that he needs to do to make his get his life back on track. Man, that would have been really good in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> For envy, I would say that would be the two priests, the priest and the bishop. Yeah, they they would be. Um, uh, you can also say that um, Father, or the, not Father, the uh, Willie, Preacher Willie Rose or whatever, he is pride, I think, personified too, because he is so prideful in his, uh, you know, his congregation and, and his belief that he is the uh, arbiter of God's word, that he thinks the Catholics are, you know, like these heathens or whatever, and they're the same religion, but he's got it right. You know, he's got the pride part of it. You never get that from the Catholic priest. He's just, you know, he's he thinks that Willie Rose is just a blowhard idiot. And but I mean, he never casts down on the Baptist because of it necessarily. I mean, he he you know he makes fun of him because of Willie, but he never you know. But Willie is just this prideful, you know, like I'm the you know Word of God personified. So he's a little bit of pride too in that sense. Oh yeah, I mean, every character has the one thing about them that stands out and also has a touch of something else. So I agree with you. But I guess Polly Chalmers is the pride in the movie because they even go so far as to mention that, you know, he, he has that line, you know, oh, I love a woman with her, that, you know, the hat that, and her pride or whatever. So she's the prideful one. That's true. I mean, she didn't emit pride, maybe from the book. She, she didn't. Yeah, I would she, say in the movie that she represented lust. She wasn't lustful herself, but she was the beautiful woman in town, and Leland Gaunt was lusting over the beautiful woman in town. Oh, that's true. Yeah, she in the movie she was more that role because, and in the book she her pride was only in the sense that she was prideful with her secrets. Like she so prideful she couldn't even let her you know lover her true love in on the secret. Um, and, you know, the hell with everybody else in town. They didn't need to know, and I agree with her on that. But I mean, she could have let Alan in on it, and she was too prideful to do that. But, but yeah, she was definitely lust in that sense, and. <clears throat> They didn't uh, in the book. She never, she never had that like strange relationship with Leland Gaunt that way. It was like she trusted Leland almost like a doctor and a patient in the book. It was like he told her that she would be cured. She was. Alan came back and he was the you know the husband, the boyfriend that's always like, I don't think this doctor's got your best interest at heart. You know, I think he's a quack. And she, you know, and then she's like, How dare you? He's exactly. treated me when nobody else has. You know, so. 
it was more of that relationship in the book versus the weird, creepy, cringy relationship that they kind of had going on. Yeah. Okay. Gluttony is a hard one because we had a few instances of multiple characters that were over drinkers. That could technically be gluttony, but gluttony wasn't something that immediately stood out to me in this film. Gluttony is kind of an addiction. I guess you could say Buster was gluttony. I was thinking that too, and I wasn't quite sure if that counted because it's, consuming can be defined in different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of that. It's 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 kind of a weird one. There's nobody else that really fits that part. And then what are the other ones besides that? I'm, I'm drawing a blank as to the, the other ones. Okay, so we've gone over pride. You went over that one. Envy, we discussed that one. Um, lust, anger, which would be wrath. Greed and sloth. So we basically got them covered. I just wasn't sure about gluttony because I wasn't sure that Buster represented gluttony. I mean, technically, he could also represent greed. Yeah, but for him, it's not really greed. He's not about the money. He he is addicted, at least in the book, and they don't really come across and sell this so well in the movie. He is addicted to everything about... About the gambling other than the money he loves the thrill of it he loves the uh he, he he loves the the even just the energy that he feels in the crowd whenever the the races are going on that that's what he drives his pleasure from it's not the money itself he just loves going to the just feeling the whole energy because it's like he's he's part of a group like he's one of those people that never felt like he really connected anybody but when he's at the racetrack he is part of everybody else like they they're all the same you know like they're all together they're all there for one thing they're you know he's more he's addicted to that more than he is the actual money that comes from the the betting well i think that covers the seven deadly sins <laughs> the 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 things i was going to say the things that i hate the most about the the movie versus the book is that since they didn't connect them to any to any of the other castle rock stories which they really couldn't because the movie version of stand by me is set in castle rock uh, Oregon versus Castle Rock, Maine, for some weird reason. Um, it they they lose a lot by not having those connections in there. I mean, it is really cool in the book where Polly Chalmers is trying to set Ace Merrill up, uh, doing a prank on Ace Merrill, which she doesn't realize at the time is actually directing Ace direct uh, 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 right toward her love, Alan Pangborn. She doesn't realize that's who she's setting up in the process. But her needful thing has to be paid for by a prank. And she, and she, you know, Ace Merrill's a piece of shit anyway, so who cares if, you know, she pranks him. But um, when she goes to do his, she has to go dig up something at the Camber Farm. And when she's there and she goes to the barn to get the shovel out to dig the hole to, to find the item that Pop Merrill left or whatever that's really junk, but Ace don't know this, the ghost of Cujo is there in the barn and it actually chases her away at the end of the scene. Like she sees these two red eyes and here's the growl deep in there. And it's like this dark shape of a dog that's in the, the, the barn. So that is a really cool scene and it really ties back, you know, and it it really adds something having that in there. Having Ace Merrill in general in the movie or in the book is great. Like I said, he is a much better sidekick to, uh, gaunt than than buster buster's kind of the wild card the one that's i want to equate it to the bible i mean you got the devil and then you got maybe the antichrist which is merrill and then you've got man which is the third six or whatever the six three sixes and man you know is represented by buster i mean he's completely flawed you know he's got he's petty 
He's suicidal at times. He still has feelings. He really does care about Myrtle, even though he killed her. I mean, that's the weird thing about him. That scene in the movie, it's kind of played more, it's it's way overacted, I think, by Walsh, where he's like, but I love Myrtle. You know, it's like in the book, you get more of a, because he's ready to eat a bullet at that point. He's like, what have I done? You know, and the only reason that he, the only reason he doesn't eat the bullet then is because Gaunt gets to, talks to him telepathically and eases him back off the ledge. He's like, nope, you got one more thing you need to do. Then you can kill yourself. I don't care what you do at that point, but you got one more thing. He's like, because he keeps feeding him this thing, this, you know, kind of like conspiracy bullshit about it's you versus them. And I'm with you. I know about them. You know, meaning that Payne the town council, everybody else in the town is against Buster Keaton and waiting for him to, you know, have his downfall. And that, you know, Gaunt's his co-conspirator. He knows all about it. So that's why he, that's how he keeps getting, you know, Buster Keaton back in his good graces, but I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where uh, he's more of a tragic figure in the book in that sense. So I, it, it sucks not having Merrill there because Ace Merrill is truly the evil piece of shit that only cares about himself. That they kind of, kind of, they try to make Buster into as an amalgamation in the movie, but it don't really work. I don't feel like because Ace is real calm and collected. He just cares about. He's he's got a bad drug deal that went wrong. He owes a bunch of people money. As long as he can get that shit paid off, he's he's good to go. And he don't care who dies in the process. He's just he's in it to get you know get what's his and get out of there. And that's why he's such a good bad guy. And he threatened to kill the kids in Stand By Me. I don't know if you remember that in the movie, but he had a switchblade on one of them was going to you know kill him basically. The main character, I think, Will Wheaton's character, just because they found the body before he did, and he you know and and he wanted to you know claim credit for it. So that's the kind of person we're talking about with Ace Merrill. I find that I often mix up the movies Stand By Me and Sometimes They Come Back. It's very close because it's it's okay. I'm glad I'm not crazy. I'm glad you confirmed that for me because I thought I was losing my fucking mind. I'm like, okay, this movie reminds me of this movie. I think I've seen Stand by Me. I think I need a refresher because I I remember sometimes they sometimes come back. they come back is the version of Stand by Me that if it if it was more supernatural based because Stand by Me is more of a slice of life type thing. Uh, in my mind, it's more like a, a version of the the Sandlot because it yes. even has the whole thing where they go to a junkyard and I think they get chased by a dog or something. So I mean, it's 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 got like a little bit of Sandlot type slice of life stuff with it, but it's got like the evil fifties uh, greaser bad guys, and that's sometimes they come back is those evil bad guys if they had died if they would have died and now they're back from hell and they're you know still going on their rampage. So it's kind of, you know, sometimes they come back, it's kind of like the supernatural version of that. So you're right in thinking that anyways. Nice. The other connection that I mean that that's, I think's better in the book is the fact, well, you know, they keep mentioning, you know, Alan Pangborn's, you know, shit that he went on in the dark half. And I think that really informs his character better, especially with regards to how, why he is the one person in town that's like the foil to, you know, Leland Gaunt is because he's already dealt with this shit before. Like, you know, this weird supernatural bullshit, you know, he's the one that's dealt with it. So I think that informs his character a little bit better and makes it, you know, more believable. And the, the book just, I mean, the fact that the book can spend so much time, which it probably does a little too much of this, but it goes through and delineates a lot of the different fuse boxes that get set up. And you really, when the town starts literally, you know, everybody's at their throats and killing each other left and right toward the end of it, you know why. Because you saw, you know, Myrna, which is uh, Brian Russ' mom's uh, best friend, you've seen her go and pull the prank on uh, Hugh Priest where she stabbed his tires. But then you also know the fact that, that, whenever her needful thing was being used and Brian Russ' mom's needful thing, 
uh, Leland Gott did this nice little thing where the, the two he knew the two of them wouldn't talk to each other, so they wouldn't know that that one of them stole the the because both of them wanted the picture to set it up. But Myrna got it because she came there first, and then Cora Rust couldn't get the picture, so she got the the, the glasses for Elvis. But there, which she actually wore in the film. She, yeah, you can see her several scenes in the film. But don't discuss it, and that's actually one of the cut scenes from the the four hour movie is more about her and her Elvis obsession. And and believe it or not, that actress is also the wife of Ed Harris, I believe. So, but anyways, uh, so she so she's wearing uh, when the two of them are using their needful things, their needful things keep progressing in their like uh, vivid image of like Elvis or whatever, to the point where um, I think it's uh, Myrna's starts out where he's on stage, and then she goes from being on stage with him to being in his car with him, and then on the car to the plane, and they're traveling toward Graceland. Cora's or, or Cora Rusk starts out in Graceland and she's, she keeps going through Graceland and having her sexual relations with Elvis in every room in the place. But the funny thing is, is that Leland God has them connect because whenever Myrna actually finally lands in her needful thing at Graceland, the two of them see each other through their needful things. And they know that the, the one stole the picture when, you know, at that point, and that's why they start going after each other. It's not because they were necessarily set up by anybody else. It's because their needful things actually, connected to each other and was like, oh shit, you bitch, you stole my man, you know, that sort of thing. But it, it goes through and it sets up a lot of that stuff so you know why, you have a better sense of why, and it's not just a few scenes of people randomly having feuds and now they're all killing each other. And the thing, the things we've already mentioned that's that's cool from the book uh, that, that we don't get to see is how the people hoard their needful things, how they won't let anybody else see it, how... And, and I think Leland God even has this great quote in the book. It's like the more you pay for the, the higher the price you pay for something, the more you value it. So whenever they do like, like for Brian's instance, because he knows that those two women killed each other because of his prank, he will not let that card out of his hands because he's got blood on his hands now. And if that card ever disappears, what, what was the point? He, you know, people are dead because he got the card. He can't get rid of the card now. If he does, he, he people died for no reason. So you're, they're kind of caught in this loop. They won't let anybody see the thing, and then they get so obsessed with it that they can't, you know, they can't function without it. And it's, it's, and it, I don't feel like that's in the movie at all. It's really lost. It was not played well in the film at all. It, for the most part, just totally got thrown under the rug. And the fact that, like we said, that it's junk to somebody else, uh, like I said, you know, Alan Pangborn can see through it immediately. Even looking through the outside window when he's looking at the stuff, everything in the window that, uh, in the, like, the store window that shows the items that he looks at, he's like, why in the hell would anybody buy this? I mean, that's his, he never gets to enter the store uh, until the end of the movie because of, the, you know, the fact that Leland Gaunt won't let him in there. But when he's looking, he's like, this is all junk. This guy's a con man. And that's, you know, kind of plays into... I feel like that would have taken such little effort to show in the film. Like, one view it's this, the other view is this. I mean, I don't make films for a living, but come on. I, I agree with you. It wouldn't have taken much at all for him to show that. And then... um now, you said in the movie, and this is the difference, you know, Alan Pangborn doesn't need anything, so it's like Leland God has no power over him. It's not that way in the book. There is one thing that he that he has that Pangborn needs, and it's set up by his... But, you, but since they had to cut it out of the movie, there's no point in showing it. The one time that he enters the Leland Gaunt's place, everything's been stripped of it except one thing. There's a little small TV there with a little VCR connected to it. Of course, they're not plugged in, and Pangborn knows this because he's already accepted the fact that Leland Gaunt's like some supernatural creature at that point. But the tape 
supposedly has a video image of how his wife and his son died. And that's the one thing that he spent the entire, you know, his whole life since they died trying to figure out. And he can't, he knows he shouldn't. Everything inside of him screams that he shouldn't put that tape in there, but he has to. And when he puts it in there, he sees Ace Merrill being the one that caused him to go off the road. And it's, and, and at that point, Gaunt has done what he's going to do with Aaron Merrill. So he just wants the two of them to kill each other at that point. And he's already had Chalmers set, you know, Merrill against Painborn. So that's his way of getting Painborn to set. And as soon as he watches this, his mind instantly, and that's another part of the supernatural element, Painborn, even though he knows that Gaunt's, you know, evil and it's all bullshit, he com- becomes completely obsessed with the fact that Merrill was the one that killed his family. And he will not, and he, he's going to even leave the town at that point. The town is at its most critical point. Everybody's dying. There's, you know, he has just made it back from like visiting uh, Brian Rusk brother in the in the movie or that's in the hospital because in the book brian rusk actually kills himself that they wouldn't put that in the movie because you can't have a kid killing herself i mean that's you know just oh yeah the bullet (laughs) made it but he didn't die yeah so uh so he's just got back from another city entirely Uh, the town's completely on the edge of collapse and the one moment when he could step up and do something he comes completely obsessed with finding merrill and he knows that merrill's in another town over so he's getting ready to leave and that's the point where Polly actually comes back. She has destroyed the the spider we talked about. She's finally broken her, you know, view of Gaunt and the spell that he had over. And she's the one that talks him back off the ledge one more time. She's like, you know, it takes her, you know, uh, touch, you know, like grabbing his hand, you know, like making him look at her. And it's like, you, you know you know he sells lies. She has to convince him that. And then it's like he finally is able to swim back from that obsession. But like he's literally, because of what he saw, like his mind is completely taken over by his his rage and he's getting ready to leave the town in the book at that point. Which I'm going to just go into the ending of the book because it would have been so much better if they'd filmed this because that's right at the ending. So you got that scene with, you know, Painborn's finally being drawn, drawn back from the, the, the ledge of getting ready to leave. He gets extremely pissed off. He happens to have at this time, he's got this little joke can of a, of a, a thing, you know, a little joke that is because his son, because in the book, he's, uh, Alan Pangborn's one of those people that does just like, you know, cheap magician tricks all the time, but he's really good at them. Like he can palm a quarter and, you know, like make it disappear and he can make like streamers come out of his wrist or whatever. And the kids, you know, he does that for the local kids kind of cheer them up. And that's actually how he gets uh, Brian Rusk's brother, Sean or whatever to, uh, to talk to him is that, you know, he, he does a little trick for him and he tries that for, uh, for Brian earlier in the book, but Brian doesn't respond because Brian's completely off. You know, he's in depression mode. He's getting ready to kill himself. So he doesn't respond to it, but he's got this one little thing that he never threw away, uh, from his son. The last thing that his son actually bought and he's, and he still feels guilty about it because whenever his son tried buying it, it he, you know, threw a fit, Painborn did. And, uh, and his wife was the one that told him, it's like, you know, he's a kid, you know, let him have it. It's not that big of a deal, but it's one of those little cans of peanuts or something that whenever you open it up on those little cheap, you know, like snakes, you know, paper snakes pops out of. So he's got this in his hand the entire time. And it's one of the things that helps bring him back from, you know, in addition to Polly. Oh yeah. But, uh, at the same time, Norris Ridgewick has been shot by Ace Merrill and one, and the bullets that they have at this point are from a, that other world that I was talking about. So whenever they hit you, even if they don't kill you, you will die anyways, because this like horrible infection spreads throughout your body and you die from it. So Norris has been hit by this. He's not been hit critically, but he's dying from the, 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 you know, the infection that's festering in him. He gets one of the other cops to drive him because he, and this is after I got us back up. He's, 
he's the only other person in the book that can see through Gaunt's shit because he's nearly he nearly hangs himself after he was the one that slashed. Um, uh, it wasn't. Uh, I don't. I don't think it. No, he was the one that slashed uh, Hugh Priest tires, and it was uh, Myrna that sliced the tires of the other guy, Beaufort or whatever that Priest was going against. So, and since uh, you know Hugh Priest went in the town and killed Beaufort and then killed him and then got killed in the process or tried to kill, uh, kill Beaufort, uh, Norris Ridgewick feels really guilty, and so he tries to commit suicide at one point. And while he's trying to hang himself, he's looking at this little rod and reel that's like that this looks like the one that his father used to have when they went fishing. And uh, he, in the middle of trying to hang himself, it, it flashes and it changes, and he sees it for what it is. And it's not like this glow, you know, this brand new shiny one that looks just like what his dad had. It's like this piece of junk that's barely, you know, held together. And he realizes that Gaunt's lied to everybody, so that's what you know brings him back from the edge, and that's why he decides to fight Gaunt. So he's on his, so he's he knows that paint that Alan has to be the one that, that that's going to do anything, that, that, but he's going to be there to help if he can, and so. He's pulled. He gets pulled up in a cruiser, police cruiser, cruiser, and he like, and he's just gotten uh, just enough energy to get in the window, and and he uses the top of the police cruiser to prop his hands up so he can hold the pistol handy in case he needs to use it. And he's right in the line of sight between Pangborn and Polly, and then that's when Ace Merrill shows up, and he pulls Polly uh, out of the car because uh, that that Pangborn's in at the time. Because she's that's where she that's where she's pulled him back from like leaving. He's in his car. He's getting ready to leave town, and she's convinced him otherwise. But she gets yanked back from the window, the the passenger side window, uh, pulled back from it, and and Ace Merrill's got her there, and he's got a switchblade to her neck, and he's going to kill her. And, and and then Gaunt comes out finally, and he's and he finally addresses Pangborn for the first time, and he basically you know is gloating over what he's done. He's got a briefcase there full of souls. It's like puffing, you know, and there's this light coming out of it, and uh, Pangborn. Uh, and, and all this kind of happens at the same time. Pangborn uh, happens to, uh, you know, uh, realize that, that, you know, he's got this growing sensation that that, that can of peanuts is not just like a silly little trick that if he uses it this one time that it's actually got real power to it. So he opens it up and like this actual radiant bright white from some other dimension comes out and actually damages Leland Gaunt. In the process, Polly, I think, bites Ace Merrill's hands long enough for him to get like, you know, drop her for a second. Ridgewick takes his shot and takes Merrill out so that, you know, and, and, you know, with the one little bit of energy he's got left and then Pangborn with a power that he feels coursing through him, which is actually more connected to Stephen King's The Stand, which is another connection between all of them, tells, uh, uh tells basically, uh, Leland Gaunt that, uh, he, he's through in the town and uh, to be gone. And he, it's almost like that, you know, when priests, you know, tell a demon to be gone out of a body, it's like got such force to it that Gaunt can't do not can't respond to it other than the fact that he has to leave like it's there's too much there's another authority behind it that's making him leave through Pangborn and then basically you see Pain, or, uh, Leland Gaunt leave town he like changes like he gets in his car and he and he and he starts to drive off and his car changes to like this old like uh, horse and buggy type setup yeah like a carriage and like he's like this little imp like creature that's on the, the the buckboard they call it the the part where you're you know with the reins and uh it you know it changes several times it's like a snake oil salesman's like carriage? traveling carriage yeah. it looks like something from the the black you know the times during the black death and you know and and they basically watch as he like goes into the sky and like disappears or whatever to go to his next place like don't kill him but they force him to leave the town and that just is, it's such a cool ending that, you know, and the movie, you compare it to the movie and it's literally just Alan Pangborn giving a speech 
like, you know, Jeff Winger out of community and like everybody stops what they're doing. They're like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's stop killing each other. And then Gaunt's like claps a few times and says, good job. And then he leaves. That's literally the ending we get in the movie. <laughs> yeah. We're on a show where we're talking about this, but I don't even <laughs> want to talk about it right now. <laughs> it was, it made me look at Leland Gaunt as a different entity entirely. And again, we've discussed, what is he? And I'm like, well, he's not the devil. And the reason I've come to that conclusion personally is because I don't believe the devil would have time for the petty ass bullshit that we got in this movie. (laughs) Personally, maybe he's like some demon of mischief or if you Google a demon of mischief. For some reason, Asmodeus comes up, and I thought he was a demon of lust, uh, which I guess in the book would make sense because I guess he took the dreams and bent them or used them in a naughty way, maybe to kind of change what was going to happen or what's going on. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I guess, but that never made sense to me. I never viewed Asmodeus as a demon of mischief, but okay, let's just go with that. Any demon of mischief is basically what I got when I think of Leland Gaunt. And they didn't play up his powers well enough. I mean, for all we know, he could be working for the devil and the devil's like, okay, well, this person is going to want this. He provided the needful thing and then Leland Gaunt was the one that executed everything (laughs) else that followed. Well, and, That's my and, and I think it loses something, like I said, not having Ace Merrill in there, but it also loses something in the movie because you just have Alan Pangborn being by his lonesome, you know, facing off against Gaunt and just giving that speech. And in the book, it's got like the whole Trinity, you know, kind of a thing where you got Pangborn, who's, you know, basically, you know, the father, you know, he's got the power that's channeled through him. You've got Polly, who's kind of the Holy Spirit, who kind of, you know, gives him the, you know, the, the ability to overcome the devil's, you know, uh, charms, in other words. And then you got Ridgewick, who's kind of like the son who comes in and, you know, kind of helps, you know, uh, after the fact or, you know, right toward the end after he's died, basically, because he was in the process of hanging himself. So it's kind of like, you know, the Jesus, you know, crucifix type thing. He comes back and he he's the one that helps save the, the moment enough for Alan to do what he needs to do. So I, I feel like it even loses that in the process of, you know, uh, just the fact that, the, you know, the way they filmed it and everything else. But I agree with you. I mean, Gaunt, to me, is not the devil as portrayed in the movie. I mean, people can think that, but he's, you know, more just like this mischievous, like, you know, I don't know, like demonic entity of some kind, whatever you want to call him, Asmodeus or, or you know, whatever. So, Do you have any trivia you would like to add before we roll into ratings? Uh, I, I, let's see. I was just going to say a few little quick trivia things. Uh, I already said it was a longer four-hour cut and called More Needful Things. It only exists as like an extra on the German DVD at this point, so that's the only place you can watch it. Mm. Uh, it's the only film made by Castle Rock Entertainment that's set in Castle Rock, which is kind of funny. Um, yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> Did they do Castle Rock movies? Apparently not. Uh, when the director took Max von Sydow to the side and gave him directions on how to play Gaunt, somebody cheekily remarked, uh, that's something you don't see every day, Moses' son telling Jesus how to play the devil. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, let's see. We are talking about Brian Rusk was not killed in the movie because the studio won't allow it. They actually had like three different directors. Uh, the first director was Lawrence Cohen, who made the Carrie movie. Uh, he wanted to be a faithful rendition of the novel, but he couldn't get it to condense uh, at all because of the the amount of characters and so he gave up on it 
And then they went to uh, W.D. Richter, who's actually executive producer on the movie, if you see that. He tried his stab at it. Didn't work, as uh, obviously. He asked them why couldn't they make a miniseries. They poo-pooed that, and so he kept it as a single film, cutting everything out of it, just like I said, Ace Merrill, Polly Chalmers, Fame Life, all that stuff. We got, And that gave us the movie that we got, unfortunately. And uh, But he, he was so fed up with it at that point, he passed it on, and then that's when they got uh, Fraser Heston to uh, finish it out. Stephen King actually wanted Michael Rooker to play Pangborn because, like I said, The Dark Half came out that very same year that this one released. So he wanted to keep the continuity between the, the it was the same character, but the studio said, no, Michael Rooker's not well enough known. We want a big name, so that's why they went with Ed Harris. Seidel, uh, when asked to play Gaunt, read the script and loved the character instantly, and that's the reason he agreed to do the movie. It only grossed $15 million domestically and was considered a critical and commercial flop of the biggest type. <laughs> so if you look at its uh, ratings on Rotten Tomato, it's, it's pretty bad. And um, something that was in the novel that I wish they could have hinted at in the movie that I, that I thought was a neat twist Leland Gaunt reveals that the needful things are not the things that he sells in his store, but the people who buy them. And it's a really poetic twist because he says that the people who are buying the, the junk that he's selling have some kind of horrible void in their soul or in their personalities, and, and, and uh, they're the needful things. And so the title of the movie is not about the items, but about the people. I thought that was a cool little twist. Okay, I like that. But um, that's basically all I got. I mean, for you know, so I, we can get into the ratings. Um, do you want me to go first, or do you want to go first? <laughs> okay, well, let me clarify real quick because you said that they went through th- two, three directors before they settled. Well, so yeah, I'm gonna go with settled on Fraser, who could put it together. But there was a script. I'm assuming yes. there was a script before there was a director, and. Doesn't the director kind of have to follow the script? I mean, I know they can kind of take the script in their own direction. I don't want to sound stupid, but I mean... They have the right to refuse to direct a certain script unless it's rewritten, but uh, that's what I'm saying. Richter got it secondly, and, you know, he was the one that actually made most of the cuts to it, you know, to get it down because the studio insisted it be a one-film movie, or, you know, one-film uh, two-hour-length movie, and when he got through making the cuts, he was just so disgusted with it. He's like, well, I'll continue on as executive producer since I put all these cuts to it, but he said somebody else is going to make it because I don't feel like this is worth filming at this point. <laughs> I mean, he's listed as the writer of this movie. He just didn't make it into the director category. I could have searched it incorrectly. I think Fraser only added the one line about Jesus to the movie. That's literally his only uh, addition to it as far as like the script itself is what I read as far as the trivia goes. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> moving forward to the reviews because uh, my <laughs> mind is pretty much just boggled at this point. Uh, you wanted me to go first because I'm ready. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. Well, I started off optimistic about this film because little child La Arena would have probably rated this movie about a four, four and a half because as a child, the things we're supposed to infer with our imagination are a lot more creative because as children, we're a lot more creative when it comes to our imagination. And in my mind watching the film, I can envision how all these items could be so powerful or have some power or control over these people that was terrifying and that was scary to child la Urena because it was a supernatural thing that 
she didn't want to think was possible. So that's child Lyurena's experience. Now, older Lyurena has been knocked down not only by watching the movie again, but also knowing details about the book, which sucks because normally book details don't usually affect how I view a film. Really, I don't usually allow that because I try to keep the two separated. You know, church and state, that's how it should be. Keep them separated. Well, they're, 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 they're two different mediums. You can get by with more details in a novel. So exactly. you have to give a movie its fair shake when it comes to the fact that they've got to cut things out. But so many good things were cut out. I feel like they didn't keep anything good. So that's where we're at with the film. My daughter ruined this for me, even though she gave the film a higher rating than I did. Because she's also younger and probably is seeing the same things I saw when I was her age. And then there's listening to you banter. And I swear my score just kept <laughs> dropping and dropping and dropping. I'm going to... Realistically, I'm somewhere between a one and a half and a two. I'm going to go with one and a half because that's what my heart tells me. Because I've just been defeated at this point. Okay, I'm deflated. <laughs> I don't have a lot of good to say about the film. I mean, the only thing that stands out to me is the doggy death scene with... Can't even speak. Which normally upsets me. And we rewound, we paused, we rewatched it again. It's the only horror element in this film. Uh, it's funny you say that because here's where I come from in this movie. I didn't watch it as a kid. I didn't watch this movie until I was a teenager in high school, if I remember right. Um, I didn't care for it then. It kind of bounced off of me. I'm like, there's other Stephen King movies that I like better. Uh, I thought it was kind of middling at that point. I uh, watched it years later because my father-in-law really loved this movie, and I just got through reading the all of the books in that Castle Rock trilogy. And so I was really down on it then, and it was probably the worst movie I'd ever seen in my life. And I've came back from then trying to give it its due, like we just talked about. You know, you can't put everything that's in the novel. So my opinion has actually went up, believe it or not. Um, that's not saying a whole lot. Uh, I I personally give this movie, uh, I, and, and it actually dropped since we, I wrote the notes for you know the show here. Uh, I was I think the movie's closer to a 1.5, but I'm going to give it a two, and that's just because I, I I like you know Ed Harris and what he tried doing in the movie, and that that was another thing I don't think I got to. Him and pa him and Bonnie Bedelia are playing two totally different or playing in a totally different movie than Max von Sydow and um, J T Walsh because they're playing it fairly straight, they're playing it fairly dramatic, and then you got Sydow and Walsh playing this cartoony like version of evil. So, I like what Ed Harris did. I liked what, you know, J.T. Walsh tried to do with Buster. Uh, I think with a better director, he could have uh, actually taken the goofy parts of Buster from the book and actually married them to the, the more tragic parts. But the director wasn't up for that, and the, probably the script wasn't either. And I feel like Gaunt, I, I liked what he did uh, as far as, like, his, his attitude and just his you know, how he went about the character. I just feel like the plot didn't sufficiently support him in that role. So uh, I'm, I'm going to give, I mean, it really, it's a 1.5 to me, but I'm going to give it a two just for those actors. But I mean, that's, that's, you know, pity points really. I mean, at that point. Yeah. That's unfortunate because <laughs> I just remember this as a child being such a great film. And I was so excited for us to review this. And now I don't really feel like we even touched on the devil at all. <laughs> if if you want a better version of this in my opinion and i hate saying this uh watch the ricky rick and morty episode that that's oh my about, god you know 
uh, where uh, the devil moves in the town and he sets up this little cure, uh, cursed curio uh, segment. And of course, Rick finds a way to uncurse everything and, and put it back in the devil's face. It's a lot better. It's uh, only going to run you about 30 minutes and you'll you'll save a lot of time and effort. Yes, and will probably be thoroughly enjoyed versus what you would get from watching this film. It's two hours of your life that you will not get back. I mean, it feels like my soul was consumed. So Leland Gaunt won. Do read the novels, though. Uh, I would I would recommend starting, if nothing else, with uh, The Dark Half. But if you want to back up and start even going with uh, The Dead Zone, you're not going to be, uh, you know, it's you're going to have a good time because those were some of Stephen King's best uh, stories, in my opinion. So that were... I have not read The Dead Zone, and I have not read The Dark Half. At least I don't think I've read The Dark Half. You can read these books individually. I've only read Needful Things. And But why wouldn't you want to read all of the others? The other two sound like they'd be a wonderful addition. Why wouldn't you want those details? <laughs> but um, I, other than that, all I'm going to say is that uh, next up, next time, next film we discuss, I mean, we'll probably have a news episode between now and then, but the next episode is going to be The Prophecy. Uh, speaking of the Dead Zone, Christopher Walken. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen this movie, and I really just want to see Christopher Walken uh, portray Gabriel and uh, and kind of see. And I think Viggo Mortensen's the devil in this one, so it's going to be interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm actually excited to watch this one. Well, I mean, especially after watching this one. <laughs> It's really campy, but it's campy in a good way. I mean, I remember, I mean, I'll, I hope I don't eat my words on that. But it's been probably 15, 20 years since I've seen the film. But I mean, I, I my initial thoughts on the prophecy are a lot more positive than what they were about needful things. So. All righty. Uh, anything to uh, plug before we head out here? Well, let's see where to start. We have a website deathholler.com you can go there you can subscribe to our show you can subscribe to our email uh any blogs that we might put up is all going to be there um we can be found on the following platforms to listen to spotify youtube Castbox, stitcher TuneIn radio google podcast itunes and recently amazon has invited us to join their network so we are now on amazon as well and we also have an Instagram page up where you can find basically any personal photos because we do put a few of those up, not too much, as well as uh, updates on our show, things like that. We have a lot of followers, so you should head on over there and join us, as well as our Facebook page. Now, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Both of them just search Death Holler and Facebook. You should be able to find us. We are pretty much more active on the group, so that's where I would recommend. But please give our page a like. It helps our show out. Well, I'd say with that, peace be with you. And with your spirit. If you enjoyed this episode of Death Holler, the review of Needful Things, please look forward to our next episode where we review The Prophecy. Death Holler is brought to you by Los Diablos Blancos Network with your host, the Reverend Dr. Death and La Arena. Please like, subscribe, follow, and share. We can be found on most podcast apps. We'll catch you next time. And don't forget to bring your death certificate.